Okay, good evening. Welcome to our Saturday session. Tonight we'll be doing another guided meditation. So please, no questions, no chatting at the moment. Close your eyes. If you want to take part, this is how, how I ask that you take part. Start by watching your stomach rise and fall. If you're sitting still, you'll find that this is the most obvious movement of the body. If it's not obvious, it can often be because you're tense. If you're new to meditation, like nothing's very clear, so to accept it's going to be challenging. But we're being aware of the movement of the body as the breath enters and the breath leaves. And there's nothing special about that. Nothing special except that it's real. And real is good. Real is good because it brings us in touch with reality keeps us in touch with reality. If we can focus on what's real, we'll become more familiar with reality. We don't realize, but a lot of the time we spend outside of reality. Either in real delusion or fantasy, or more commonly just in the realm of our reactions and conceptions about things. We experience things, yes, we experience reality, but our minds are quick to move on from that. Forget the reality and get caught up in mental fomentation about the things we experience. So our practice is to come back to the things that we experience and try to stay with them so we can see what's really going on. We start to learn how habits form. We see our bad and good habits. We don't have to judge them, we just see clearly the nature of all of our habits and the nature of our mind and the nature of the things that we experience. Come to see that the things we often cling to are not worth clinging to. Eventually we come to see that nothing's worth clinging to. But to start, 
with this humble beginning. We start with the rising and the falling of the stomach. So when the stomach rises, we say to ourselves, rising. And when it falls, falling. Rising. Falling. The words we use are a mantra. A mantra is a meditation tool designed to focus the attention on an object. But here we're using it not for some abstract or conceptual object, but we're using it for our experiences, which are momentary and changing. So don't expect this to be peaceful or pleasant or smooth. You should expect some chaos. There's an unpredictable aspect to reality that comes with the territory. It's part of what you'll start to learn that you can't predict or expect or anticipate. You can't depend upon anything as being stable or satisfying or controllable. Nonetheless, we look at it. When the stomach rises, you don't have to do anything special. All you have to do is say to yourself, rising. That's it. That's how you start. What you're doing is reminding yourself, this is rising. It's, it seems like a drop in the bucket, but it's an important drop. That drop is a reaffirmation. That reality is reality. It's a reaffirmation of reality in favor of any kind of reaction or conception or extrapolation of reality. Rising, falling. You do that once, you've done a great thing. You do that again and again and you become a great being. You'll see this changes you. Changes you because you start to see the unpredictable nature of things. You lose your grasp, your clinging to things which you can't hold on to. You see that there's only suffering when you cling to them because you can't control them. They don't belong to you. They aren't you. They aren't yours. So the body, the body is our first and main object of contemplation just because it's, it's obvious. It's prominent. Ever present, rising, falling. But there's, of course, a lot more going on, and so we don't stay with just the body. We have next the feelings feelings of pain, 
feelings of pleasure, calm feelings. And all of these are a part of reality as well. So we include them in our, our realm of contemplation. When we feel pain, for example, we don't have to focus on the stomach anymore, focus on the pain. Use it as an object of meditation, just like the rising, falling. Just say to yourself, pain, pain, pain. You feel happy, say to yourself, happy, happy. And just stay with it until it goes away. If you feel calm, say calm, calm. Once it's gone, go back again to the rising and falling. You can always come back to the body, which is useful. It helps keep you focused. third object of mindfulness is the mind. So you're aware of the body, the feelings. The mind is, in its most simplest form, it's the thinking. A mental activity, before we start talking about emotions, it's just the thoughts. We all have thoughts. And before we talk about whether they're good thoughts or bad thoughts, even before we discriminate past, future. Ultimately, they're at their basic form. They're just thoughts. All of our emotions come as responses or corollaries to the, the thoughts. 
when you think that's real. And so we, when we think in meditation, we say to ourselves, thinking, thinking. And eventually you can start to catch your thoughts. In the beginning you just realize after you've thought. Maybe you don't even realize sometimes that you're thinking, but through training. When you think, you start to say to yourself, thinking, thinking. So that's what we try to do now. Keep your eyes you're coming if you're coming late we're doing guided meditation so close your eyes no questions please close your eyes meditate with us when you're thinking say to yourself thinking thinking and when it's gone should disappear pretty quickly, just come back to the rising and falling. If you're remembering or planning, you can say remembering, remembering, planning. You don't have to, but it can help sometimes to be clear the sort of thinking that it is. goal is not to stop thinking, it's just to not understand and remind ourselves thinking is thinking, to keep ourselves present, keep ourselves focused on reality.
the final object of meditation or set of objects is called Dhamma. And Dhamma is a word that means reality. But here it means specifically the the teachings of the Buddha on reality. So we're aware of a great many things. We come become familiar with the path. And the Dhammas are like landmarks on the path. They're pieces of the path. They're important teachings that relate to reality or they're important realities that relate to the path. The first set is the hindrances. These are not good things, but they're very important things. They're important because they're not good, because they're a detriment to our practice. If these things arise and persist, they can drag us down and hold us back, keep us from realizing our potential, keep us from keep us from reality understanding keep us from peace happiness keep us tied to evil to stress to suffering five hindrances they are liking disliking drowsiness distraction and doubt these are the hindrances they pull us they hold us back they pull us down So now as you're meditating, when the hindrances arise, liking or wanting, just say liking, liking or wanting, wanting. There's disliking, say disliking, disliking. If there's any kind of disliking like anger, frustration, boredom, sadness, depression, fear, all of these are the same sort of emotion. Just focus on the pick one pick the name that's closest and say to yourself, angry, angry, bored, bored, frustrated, frustrated, whatever one it is. feel drowsy or tired, focus on that. Say tired, tired, or drowsy, drowsy. If there's any worry or anxiety, any restlessness, distraction, thinking too much, Say to yourself, distracted, distracted, worried, worried, restless, restless, whatever it is. 
And if there's any doubt or confusion, focus on that. Say doubting, doubting. confused, say confused, confused. All of these things are reality. Even the bad ones, the good ones, the bad ones, they're real. And our exposure to them, our Familiarity to them, familiarity with them, it, it improves our ability to deal with them. Think of something you're afraid of, how much power it has over you, something you avoid, something strange an adversary you don't know. Very hard to, to prepare for or re react to. But the familiarity creates power, creates strength. Especially because reality isn't something that can actually harm us. Our experiences don't hurt us. Our reactions hurt us far more. So mindfulness is a practice of not reacting, but also about learning about our reactions when we do react. And the understanding, the clarity, the familiarity that comes from that from understanding our experiences, understanding our reactions to them, just seeing them clearly for what they are, gives us this strength and this wisdom. It frees us from bad reactions, emotions, etc. As we see clearly that they're not to our benefit.
These are the four satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. So the basis of our observation, body, the feelings, the mind, the Dhamma. Dhamma includes the other things, it includes the six senses. So seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking, which we already covered. But the other five you also should be aware of if you see things. You say to yourself, seeing, seeing. If you hear sounds, say hearing, hearing. Smelling, good smells, bad smells. Say smelling, smelling. Tasting, if you taste sweet, sour, salty, whatever kind of taste, doesn't matter. Just say tasting, tasting. And if you feel something on the body, hot, cold, hard, soft, whatever, you can just say feeling, feeling. And again, as you practice these, the idea is that you come to see clearly. Simply put, you see your experiences more clearly. But more precisely, there are three things that we try to see about reality that I already mentioned briefly, but just as a reminder. The first thing we come to see is that inside of ourselves and in the world around us, Everything is unpredictable, impermanent, unstable, but not lasting. What this means is we, we change our perspective so that instead of seeing and experiencing things as things, as entities that exist and persist, We look from a point of view of experiences and we see that well, experiences are unpredictable, impermanent, momentary. We see that the basis of all of our reality is momentary and unpredictable, unstable. And so we realize that that our way of living, of clinging to things, holding on to things as though they'd be a shelter from the storm is misguided. We realize when we become powerful, we become strong enough 
that we can face the storm and can face reality, can face our experiences without needing anything to cling to. We can adapt, learn to flow with life, with reality, rather than fight against it or try and tame it or control it. We reduce and eventually discard our need to control, our need to cling, to hold on, our need for stability or refuge. The second thing, and this is mainly, or at least partially because of how unpredictable things are, is that everything inside of us and in the world around us is unsatisfying. The things that we seek out satisfaction in are, are actually made up of momentary experiences. And because they're unpredictable and unstable, getting them is a lot of work. And it's an unsure it's an uncertainty. We may or may not get what we want. But whether we get or don't get what we want, the wanting itself is habit forming. And every time you do get what you want, it reaffirms the pleasure excitement, the enjoyment of getting what you want, which reaffirms and augments the desire for it. You become addicted. And because of the unpredictable nature of reality, we're constantly stressed about trying to obtain and maintain the things that we want, just because of the want, not because of any, well, there's no, it's not that there's any real value to the things, it's all because, it happens because of the wanting. Reality doesn't have value, it just has reality, it has experience. And the things that we cling to we thought were going to satisfy us realize they're momentary they're not going to satisfy us and the third quality is that everything inside of us and in the world around us has the quality of well it, it's lacking the quality of self it doesn't have a self in and of itself and that's really the point of the difference the difference between the way a meditator sees reality and an ordinary person or an ordinary state of being the way that that way reality is seen that way ordinarily is in terms of people places things objects and entities that don't actually exist in in the world they exist in our minds we experience something maybe we see someone or something and the idea of who or what it is arises in our mind. It doesn't arise in that being. That being is actually just made up of experiences. We see them or we hear them. Our interactions with them are 
what's real, it's the interactions, it's the experiences. And so there's no entity, there's no self to things. Selves aren't things that can exist. They don't have anything to do with a per an experience-based per perspective. But also, and quite importantly, we we come to see that we can't control reality, so that we don't actually have a self in that sense. It's not that it's not even that we don't have a self. It's just that the whole idea of self is is thrown out the window. It has no place in experience. Experience is real in and of itself, without any being or self or soul required. But what that means is that there's no control and there's no possession. Saying something is mine doesn't really mean anything, except in your own mind and maybe other people's minds, if you can convince them that it is yours. And if you can't, or regardless, there's no sense in which it's yours in reality, and so it changes and it disappoints. People change, and we don't like the way they've changed. People act in ways that hurt us, even though we wish they would bring us happiness. And we suffer. We suffer trying to control. We suffer out of a lack of preparedness for the out-of-control nature of reality. We suffer. And so when we see this, when we see all three of these things, our perspective changes from seeking out and clinging to things or running away and avoiding things to facing, to experiencing just as they are. There's no reason to cling. There's no reason to run. There's no benefit. You can't fix. You can't control. You can't predict. You can't cling. So that's a guided meditation and Dhamma. Now I think we can move to Q&A. I'm going to try to enable the chat. I was hoping I could disable it for the first part so that there wouldn't be the temptation to ask questions during the meditation. I'm not sure if I can turn it on again. I think if I turn it on, it might interrupt the broadcast. So bear with me. Hopefully this works. It seems to have worked. Hmm. Now I know. Okay, so if you have any questions... If you have any questions, please post them now. 
Thank you for your patience and participation. Those of you who meditated with me. There are no questions. We'll just sit here mindfully. Hey, there's a mod. Fernando is a mod. Fernando, you can you can act as policeman. If anyone steps out of line, you just put them on timeout. Okay. I think the audio was low. Thank you for noticing. For some reason I think it was turned down. I'm actually not sure. Maybe it's too loud now. Looks good though. Okay, do we have... Questions? I think this is a question. Let's see here. Got your name as well. Let's remove that. I find categorizing within experiences within the four foundations of mindfulness a bit confusing. I've heard, for example, that seeing is Gaya and pain is Vedana. Hmm. Yes, Vedana is explicitly pain, pleasure, and calm. That's Vedana, that's what it means. That's exactly what it means. But kaya, uh, seeing is not kaya, seeing is in Dhamma. It doesn't really matter, you don't have to, it's not a quiz where you'll have to know which Satipatthana has which. It's more about describing the, the pasture. And when you hear all four of them, you don't have to know which one is which, you just have to know the things that are in and understand how they're different from the things that are outside the pasture. When a thought arises in the mind, I track it to the... Okay. Uh, well, I'd re recommend you read my booklet for this question. Right. Another thing about this is uh, 
Um, try and stay focused on the meditation even during this session. So if you're here with me, stay mindful. You don't have to be reading or watching. Just close your eyes and meditate. And when you have a question, post it. If I get to it, I'll get to it. Try and keep meditation uh, questions related to meditation. But I'm not going to comment on your practice if it's different from mine. I'll just say if you're interested in my practice, you can read read our booklet. How does one overcome the desire to be mindful? One doesn't overcome desires. One comes to see them clearly. And then through seeing clearly, you see how pointless it is to desire things and you let it go. Do you recommend noting thinking or noting what you are thinking and experiencing in the mind? I recommend noting thinking and not concerning yourself with the content because that's not the reality. The reality is the thinking. The rest comes up as concepts. Why is taking notes during Dhamma talks unacceptable or discouraged? I don't know that it is unacceptable or discouraged. I encourage during this time that you focus on your practice because the information isn't the important part. The experience and the understanding and the clarity is important. You don't need intellect to become enlightened. All you need is clarity and presence. How can I practice vipassana while talking? I can't note talking, so should I just bring awareness to the movement of my lips? Yes, that works quite well. Feeling, just note to yourself feeling. You could just note talking, talking. The mind is quick enough. Take some practice. But the other thing about talking is that there's a lot of mental activity involved in the talking. So you can't constantly be mindful because sometimes you're thinking of what to say or processing what someone else has said. And so like a lot of questions... The answer, I get a lot these questions about how to be mindful doing X, Y, or Z. And obviously you can't all the time because it's a different mental activity. It's like saying, how could you think about the sky when you're thinking about the earth or something? You can't, obviously. Or, or to bring it to the body, how can you juggle when you're standing on your head well you can't unless you can juggle with your feet so that anything to do with the mind is going to take away take you away from meditation obviously but that being said experiences are momentary talking is momentary 
and within the talking, the intention and the impulsion that causes the lips to move is momentary. And after that impulsion, you can of course be mindful of the lips moving. The mind is quick enough. Is bliss possible in vipassana or is it only an outcome of samatha? So let's, uh, let's be clear. Vipassana is called vipassana not because of the practice per se, but because of the result of the practice. The practice is satipatthana. Vipassana is what comes from it. So in the practice of satipatthana, can bliss arise? Of course it can. Is it the goal? No, it's not the goal. The goal is vipassana, to see clearly. And it's a very different goal. Of course, when you start to see clearly, much more bliss begins to come. But if that's your focus, it's very hard to come to see clearly. If your focus is on the bliss. How can we swift, swift? How can we... Swift. I don't understand that word. How can we make our busy mind to stay mindfully in daily life? Swift. Like hmm. something, our busy mind. To stay mindfully in daily life. Switch, maybe. Well, one thing about being mindful in daily life is it takes practice. And uh, it's very full on, right? So there's going to be a lot of pitfalls, a lot of hindrances, a lot of distractions. And so like any hands-on activity, it often takes practice. And so if you want to be mindful in daily life, it really helps if you're mindful outside of daily life. Just like a boxer. If a boxer's going to win their boxing match, they can't just box. That's useful. But it's not enough to win. They need to spend time punching a bag. And that's what meditation is. It's like punching a bag. You're not actually fighting. You know, boxing may not be the best metaphor because of how awful and painful and violent it is, but... In a sense, we're we're at war. We're at war with defilements. We're at war with delusion. And if we want to fight it, we have to be ready. We can't just go to battle, or we'll be defeated, and we'll end up succumbing to our enemies, our defilements. So, be mindful in daily life. Do some non mind non daily life mindfulness. Do some formal meditation. If you're really interested, you can do a course. We have online, uh, we have at-home courses that you're welcome to to partake in. What is worry or fear? I find it hard to be mindful of these experiences because they immediately stop after noticing. Sensations as a result of these mind states are much clearer. 
Well, you know what they are. There's no question there. Just because they immediately stop doesn't mean you're not clear what they are. So there's no need to ask what they are. They are worry and they are fear. You, you recognize them. It's just they are very quick to disappear. That's fine. We're not really into noting things as they happen because that, as they happen, you're you're experiencing them, of course. But once you've been worried, just say to yourself, worried. Acknowledging that it was worry. Reminding yourself, that wasn't a problem, that was worry. This kind of reminding keeps your mind straight, keeps your mind uh, pure, keeps your mind from reacting improperly. You change your reaction just by reminding yourself. Um, but, yes, absolutely, the sensations as a result of them are much, are much more, not necessarily clearer, but yes, more obvious. They last longer because they're physical. So focus on them as well. That's fine. That's very important because if you don't, what normally happens is they make you more anxious, more afraid, more worried. Focus on them. Note them. Watch them come and go. And if you do that, you'll find that they don't do what they normally do, which is perpetuate the fear, the anxiety, the worry. If you want to know how you should do meditation, breath meditation, someone is asking about, I say you should read my booklet. I mean, if you want my answer. So if you're asking should, there's not really a should because there's many different ways of practicing. But you could read my booklet and learn how to practice that way. It's on our website. It should be in the description of this video. And that's it, a small crowd tonight, smaller than normal, fewer questions. I'm not sure if the guided meditation put people off or if it's just a Saturday. I was thinking we might switch, I said this already, I think next week I'll try to switch to an earlier time on Saturdays, maybe 3 o'clock p.m., which would have been about six hours ago from now which gives um, gives a chance for Europeans to come and chat and spend time. So I, I'm still taking questions, if anyone has any, but it may be that we're a smaller group today. Could a problem arise from adding different practices from different Buddhist traditions? Well, yes, I mean, absolutely, because many Buddhist traditions believe very different things. So if people believe very different things, their practices are going to be very different, right? Just because something is called Buddhist doesn't mean it's compatible with other things that are called Buddhist. So if we ask, let's ask a broader question, is it possible for two practices to be incompatible? I mean, yes, absolutely, of course. If you talk about, like suppose there were a practice 
um, where you practice to get very angry or a practice of lust. I mean, if you think about it, everything's like meditation. Even engaging in lustful thoughts or angry thoughts is a kind of a meditation. Premeditated murder, if you sit around plotting someone's death or these these people who just are so lost that they the, the, the people who commit these mass shootings where they plan to go and shoot people and they collect weapons and prepare there's a meditation involved there so so of course in a broader level any you know, it's it's all it's possible for there to be any sort of meditation but within Buddhism, of course, there are different views. There are going to be views about self. There are going to be views about um, enlightenment. One of the big problems, I think, that's often not recognized is the difference of opinion between whether one should practice or one should depend upon another being. And our our position, my position, and the position that I see in our tradition is to not depend on others or to work towards non-dependence. Now, in the beginning, of course, you depend very much on your teacher and that's acknowledged. But the, the, the path and the direction you head and should be headed is towards independence. And there are traditions where their practice is based on faith and they call themselves Buddhists, but I don't think it's a very Buddhist practice because their intention is to rely upon other beings. That's just an example. There are many other problems. Now, if you put those aside, if you go a little bit, let's bring it in even further. If we say, what about in our tradition? Are there practices that are going to be conflicting, even though the views are basically the same? So I think on that level, the answer is less certain no, but or set less certainly yes, could there be a problem? Um, but there's still a, a potential because not not if if we're talking about groups that have similar or, or identical views, you can still have the problem that's just a te technical or practical problem, and that is that meditation takes aptitude. And there's a lot of kind there's different kinds of aptitude. There's physical aptitude. There's just the organic brain aptitude. And so switching between different techniques can be problematic. It can be difficult as you try and adapt and, and switch back and forth, learning two different techniques. All of this is just a long way of saying you know, better to stick to one technique, whatever that is, one tradition. There's no reason and there's dubious benefit to using multiple traditions. Could we have three days a week? Well, there are seven days in the week. You can have them all. But do you mean you want me to broadcast three days a week? I don't see, I don't know why. I don't know why that would why that would be beneficial. Mindfulness decreases the number of questions. That's a good point. You raise a good point. But I just mean to, meant to say that we have fewer people. We often have like 80, 90 people. 
So maybe people are getting tired of this. Maybe we should switch to something else. Or maybe it's just this day. It seems to be highly random. Not, I'm not complaining, certainly. Just acknowledging that we may be a little bit quieter. Approximately how many hours of meditation does it take to manage watching the breath without controlling it? This is a very odd question. I mean, I have to look at it from your perspective and try and understand where you're coming from, but I guess that you have to realize that everybody's very, very different. It's maybe something we don't realize. It's a good point. We don't really realize it. That it's very much dependent on you. There's no approximately how many hours. It's different for everyone. We can maybe put it like this. If we take a, a foundation course, what I would consider a foundation course in insight meditation or in mindfulness meditation, what percentage of that course, because it's going to take more or less time for individuals, what percent of that time does it take to begin to watch the breath without controlling it? And and it should be noted that to really watch the breath without controlling it would probably mean something like being enlightened. Of course, because controlling is a part of our delusion. It's a part of what keeps one from seeing clearly. And so rather than look at it um, in terms of trying to get to that point where you're no longer controlling it, it's really putting the card in front of the horse. You should focus on the the practice and, and the experience of controlling the breath. When there's tension because of it, when there's stress because of it, when there's worry or fear or anxiety or disliking, wanting, craving, whatever there is. You should focus on all that. Don't worry about when you're going to be able to be free from it because that is only going to distract you. It's only going to keep you from becoming free from it. Wanting to be free from it, it becomes like a bully. It bullies you the more it shows, it sees how vulnerable you are. But um, if we talk about where you begin to, if you're discouraged because it doesn't seem like you're able to, when you begin to, I would say about a quarter of the way through, or maybe even less, you start to experience and, and taste the, um, the, the ability you taste some experiences of just knowing things rather than controlling them. I mean, in the beginning you can have it. It's just that it starts to become a little bit, you get a little bit better after about a week. There, I even put a, a number on it. It depends very much on the individual. 
I guess why I, I balk at the question is because don't worry too much about hours. It's not hours of meditation. You can practice hours and hours and get no benefit because of how, where your mind is and how your mind is. Don't think about the hours. It's not it's not like work or or physical workout. Well, maybe it is like a physical workout. And if you're very much out of shape, it's going to take you longer to get in shape. Is there a name for the mind state process that creates the idea that objects, identity, and self exists? Uh, I mean, one one big root one is ignorance. I think ignorance is a good answer to that question. Delusion, maybe, but ignorance. When I meditate, a lot of saliva builds up in my mouth. Is this a bad thing? There are no bad things. There are only experiences. It's generally bad if you're not mindful of them, if you don't experience them and see them clearly for what they are. So if that happens, you should try and just see it for what it is. During walking meditation, when any distraction arises, it takes so much time to stop before noting it. The distraction is often long gone by the time I stopped what to do. You can just, in walking, you can just ignore some distractions. You don't have to note them all. Try and note if they're, uh, if they're glaringly disruptive. But if it's just a stray thought, you can just ignore it. For that reason, you see it's a bit awkward to be trying to note it while you're walking. You can just bring the mind back to the foot instead. In sitting, try to note things because, it's, of course, you have the luxury of doing that. But with walking, it's not easy to, to split your attention. So you can't walk, keep walking and note, but if you stop, as you say, it's already gone. So if you're really thinking a lot, then just stop and say distracted, distracted. I find that when I meditate, I am aware of my thoughts as they come and go, but I always have these lingering feelings. They aren't thoughts, but they are residual feelings. What to do about this? Well, be mindful of it. Now that's what we do about things. What do I do about this is often asked in terms of how do I fix it, as though it's a problem, but that's not what mindfulness is about mindfulness isn't about fixing things it's about seeing them clearly removing our ignorance about them right removing ignorance removing ignorance means learning learning about them as you see them more clearly they have less power over you they give rise they they cause you to give rise less to this feeling of how to get rid of them how to change them I am brand new to vipassana. When meditating, welcome. 
When meditating, I nod off into a very light sleep and then note the thoughts about that. Is this common? So questions about whether things are common are not really important. It doesn't matter whether it's common. It doesn't have any bearing on your practice. The question people often ask that this because they're concerned that they might be doing something wrong, I think, or that something's going wrong with their practice. They want reassurance that they're on the right path, the path that everyone else is on, and that's not really how it works. You might very well have very different experiences from everyone else, and that's not doesn't have any bearing on your practice at all. Uh, in fact, part of the practice is going to be seeing things that are not common or seeing things that are, are unpredictable, strange. Seeing things that are strange, unexpected, is an important part of the practice because it shakes you up. It makes you more flexible as you realize that you can't predict and can't rely upon things to be a certain way. But when you meditate and nod off into a light sleep, um, that's a common thing that happens in the beginning of practice. So what I mean to say by that is that it's the sort of thing that goes away over time. Uh, if you keep up the practice, if you get into a meditation course, you'll find that after some time your your schedule should sta stabilize and you're able to stay. It has often to do with what you're doing outside of the practice. And that starts to work itself out as you practice. But it can, you know, it, it's not to say it's not going to keep happening. It might continue, it might happen again in the future or continue to happen into the future. And you just take it as part of your practice. Because it depends often on what you were doing during the day. Does our meditation center usually celebrate Waisak? We usually celebrate it together in, in Ontario, Canada. All the monasteries come together and they have a big celebration in, in downtown Mississauga. But uh, that's not happening this year. So I celebrated it today by giving a talk with a group in 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 Halifax. They invited me to give a talk. And now I'm celebrating it with all of you. I see a lot of distracting geometry when meditating. I am sober. I do my best to label it as seeing, but I feel like there's no point in closing my eyes when meditating at this point. What should I do? Why would there be no point? should just say seeing seeing i guess i guess in fact the point is to grapple with this feeling that there's no point right so you feel you feel that there's no point and that's an interesting object of meditation rather than taking that as your weapon or tool you know your point of reference take that as the object of your meditation Feeling, feeling maybe, or discouraged, disliking, that sort of thing. Because that's really the, it's, it's showing you a problem. That's the problem. You don't realize that that is the one that's the problem. Not what you see.
if after a while the seeing doesn't go away, you can just ignore it. But much more you should deal with the the discouraged feelings uh, for some reason, because seeing is very much a valid part of the meditation. So the idea that it's a problem is, is the real culprit. What is a good manual for vipassana practice? Well, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> at the risk of sounding self-serving, I wrote a booklet on how to meditate. So I recommend that if you haven't read it. If you have read it, well, it's short. It's not much of a manual, but it's a good... Well, it is kind of a manual. It's a beginner's manual. And then if you've done that, I recommend you don't read too much more. You try to undertake a meditation course. So we have these at-home courses now. You're welcome to take one. We meet once a week, and we'll go through the course of practice. All right. We have a bunch of questions that I'm not going to answer, um, mainly because, well, they're speculative, or they are the kind that could be answered by reading my booklet. So I'm going to go. It was a shorter Q&A because of the guided meditation. Hopefully that will be somewhat useful for people on the internet catching this if they haven't done meditation, maybe guided meditation is useful for them. If you're one of those people and this helped you, I'm glad to know that. Or I won't know that, but I'm, I'm, that was my hope. And so if that's possible, then very good for you. Sadhu. Thank you all for listening, for watching, for meditating with us tonight. And I wish you all a a good night, and to find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering, progress on the Buddhist path, on the path to freedom. Have a good night. Sadhu.